Genesis again this, this afternoon for a, a moment. Uh, we went over some of this, but I want to tie the current series on honoring God in with Pentecost because there are some very definite parallels that I, I, uh, I feel we need to draw and perhaps have not drawn in quite the same way before. At least I haven't. But speaking of the creation here in Genesis 1, down in verse 31 it said, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So in six days he had created the heavens and the earth, as we know. And then in chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, or set it apart, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So at that point, he established the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, and as I said before, it is a memorial of creation. We keep it every week to remind us of that which was created, and especially he who did the creating. So if we get away from the weekly Sabbath, we are getting away from the meaning of creation, and we are also putting aside the Creator, because that's what he did. That is... What makes Sunday worship or Wednesday worship so diabolical is that it pulls you away from the creation and the Creator in the way that he set it up to be remembered. And that's why he tells us in Genesis 31 that the Sabbath is a sign between God and his people. Now, Israel in the Red and the uh, in, in Mitzrayim or Egypt had gotten away from the Sabbath and had gotten away from God and didn't even remember who God was after 430 years. So they completely lost it. Now, he speaks of this rest, and it is not the last time a rest is spoken of in the Bible. I skipped a chapter in uh, Psalms yesterday that I wanted to save to today. So let's go to Psalm 95. <clears throat> Now it begins in much the same way that many that we read yesterday do. O come, let us sing to the Eternal. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with psalms. For the Eternal is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So out of the deep, as we read in Genesis 1, he brought the dry land up out of the waters and formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Eternal, our Maker. So he's establishing in this psalm, again, that he is our creator and our maker, and that the heavens and the earth and all that in them is, uh, was his handiwork. 
Verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the sheep, are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. So he starts this by saying, bring gladness and joy before him, reminds us he is our creator and our maker, and then there is a warning here, which we just heard about again in the sermonette, it seems to be kind of a theme running through the day so far, and there's no collusion, I guarantee you, uh, between the speakers. I usually don't know what I'm going to say till I sit down to do it, or stand up to do it for the most part. Uh, so if I don't know, I certainly can't tell anybody else. But he warns us not to harden our hearts like they did in the day of provocation and in the wilderness. Verse 10, Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said it is a people that do err in their heart. It was a heart problem back then, just like we have heart trouble today. And they have not known my ways. Isn't it interesting that in a way that we have so much heart disease and heart problems in our degenerate society today, physical heart problems, and yet our spiritual heart is a serious problem. So the physical and the spiritual go hand in hand again. Forty years long as I agree with this generation, they erred in their heart, they've not known my ways, so it boils down to having a heart that follows after the ways of God unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now I want to go back to uh, Numbers 14, or actually 13, I guess, and pick up the story that is introduced in Psalm 95 back here, or that is reiterated there, the story is back here, but before we leave the story in Genesis for a moment, let's consider how God has enacted his situation with people from the very beginning. Notice that Adam and Eve started out in a rest, did they not? Everything was beautiful, everything was fine, there were no problems, no difficulties, no attitudes, no physical discomforts of any kind, it was a restful place. Everything there was of rest. Uh, human beings generally can't stand prosperity. It does things to them. And those people couldn't stand prosperity. As soon as temptation came, they left the one who had created them and the creation which he had made and took a different fork in the road. They went with Satan and with human nature. And they destroyed the rest that God had given them, that they had started with. So God does not start things out in a hard way, most generally. At least he didn't at the beginning of creation with mankind. He started it as easy as you can get. Everything absolutely good, perfect, very good, as he put it. And it did not take them long, 
We won't argue how long, but it didn't take them very long to destroy the beauty, the tranquility, the peace that God had given them. So that's the way he started them. Now, I've considered over the years and hadn't really thought it through, well, why did God put Israel through 430 years in Egypt or Mithraim? Now, he had started out again after the flood with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. Joseph, as a young man, went down into Egypt, went through a certain amount of trials there until he rose to be really the ruler under Pharaoh in Egypt. So Israel wasn't very big by then, were they? You had the 12 sons of Jacob, and one of them was already in Egypt. And then God caused famine and caused Joseph to be the one to rectify the problems created by famine. And he brought Jacob with just 70 family members down into Mitzrayim, and it was under fairly peaceful, though arduous, circumstances. Uh, they were free, but they didn't have enough food because of the drought. So Joseph invited them down there. They came, and they were given the best parts of Egypt, the land of Goshen, uh, very productive. And since they wanted to raise cattle, it was good in pastures. Everything was great. Uh, but it wasn't long until... As they multiplied, the Egyptians began to fear them and put them into captivity. Now, God had not really started to build Israel as the sand of the sea at the time Jacob went into Egypt, had he? It was still very small, just a family, if you will. But as conditions grew worse, God put them through a terrible time of slavery, and then even as deliverance began to come, the slavery got even more severe uh, because Pharaoh began to hold it against the Israelites that the plagues were coming on Egypt. So take away their straw, make life harder. you still got to produce as many bricks, and they better be good quality in, fact, in spite of the fact you don't have anything to bind them together. So it got worse and worse. Now God was about to offer them what? Arrest. We just read about that in uh, Psalm 95. But he had put them through slavery. He, he did it just the opposite of the way he did Adam and Eve. He did it with Adam and Eve by giving them peace first, and they blew it and went into unrest and difficulty and problems for themselves until at least the flood and the curses have continued even on down through history from that time forward. So he gave them the good first, and they turned it into bad. So now God reverses the process, gives them the bad first, and then offers to turn it into good if they're ready to listen to him and trust him to do it. So Moses comes and says, all right, you're in a very unrestful situation. Things are really bad for you, aren't they? Yes, they are. You got that right. Things are tough all over. So he said, I'm going to take you out of here. And they said, oh, good. But God is the one that's going to deliver you. Well, who is he? So he had to try to explain who God was. And then he said, are you going to trust, I'm paraphrasing, 
or filling in the story. Are you going to trust me and are you going to trust God to take you out? They must have agreed, yeah, we'll do that. Well, you can spoil the Egyptians, take anything they have that you want. Oh, goody. So they went, grabbed all the glittering jewels and everything of value that they could from the Egyptians and said, you're going to be delivered this night. So eat the Passover with your sandals on, your staff in your hand, and your loins girded, and be ready to go at a moment's notice. And when the notice came, they left. So emotionally, mentally, they had accepted this deliverance that was to come, and they were willing to gather and go. And they did. They went out with a high hand, doesn't it say? They were so joyous, so happy. Everything was wonderful. Everything was great. God had created all kinds of miracles for them. Their firstborn were saved. They were wealthy. They were healthy. Not one of them was lame. God may have healed those who were crippled from slavery and beatings and old age and so on. So that they went out with a high hand, they were renewed as eagles. Some of the scriptures we read about in Isaiah and other places. Things were really good, looking great. Now how long could they stand prosperity? <laughs> about six days maybe. They crossed the Red Sea, more great miracles, incredible things. Who had ever seen an ocean blow apart with the wind? and dry the land out overnight so you could walk through, get on the other side, turn back, see the Egyptians coming and have the waters washed back over them. What an incredible thing to witness. It's beyond our comprehension and imagination, isn't it? Okay, that took care of that. We'll sing the song of Moses. We'll sing the song of, Mitz of uh, not Mitzrium. Uh, what am I trying to say? I got Ephraim, Mitzrium, and what's her name all mixed up here? Uh, Miriam, uh, and everything will be great. So then they turned to walk on into the desert toward the promised land that had been promised to them, and a promised land was what? A rest. They'd been in slavery all this time, and God promised them, I'll deliver you and I'll give you a land of rest. And first thing they did was begin to complain, gripe, Where's the water? You didn't bring us any water. Who forgot the water? God's going to brought us out here to die of starvation and hunger. Murmured and complained right when everything was going good. Couldn't be better. Let's go to number 13. Now, they wandered for... Forty years, just because of griping and complaining and ultimately not trusting God in faith that he could and would deliver them. The hope, the trust, the faith, if you will, that they had had when they accepted Moses' proposal and all those miracles suddenly just vanished. Their faith, their trust was broken. He brought us out here to die. That's what he had in mind all along. Now, they had been slaves, and they had been conditioned to having the rug pulled out from under them. 
they've been conditioned to have promises made to them and have those promises denied. Now, we are in a situation in our society today where all kinds of social promises and cradle-to-grave taking care of us has been promised, and now those things are being taken away. Social Security is not funded. The health plans are not funded. The pension plans are not funded. We're in debt up to a way above our heads, and our whole society and our whole system of finance and money, our whole economy is collapsing before our very eyes. So even the promises that we thought we had from our own government and from our American way of life is collapsing. So what's happening in our nation today is very similar to what happened with the Israelites back then. So they came to the end of that time, and God had been so angry uh, at Moses for smiting the rock instead of just speaking as he had been instructed, and for the people for not trusting and believing that God could and would deliver. So it came time to go into the promised land after 40 years, and all those people who had complained and murmured and griped and not trusted had died. Come down to verse 17, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Get up this way southward and go up into the mountain, and it was the time of first ripe grapes down in verse 20, and it was a land that was incredible. Uh, verse 23, they came to the brook of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bore it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. I've picked grapes before, haven't you? Maybe cut them with scissors or a knife or even pull them off the stem, and they're about like so, you know, that's, that's about what you see usually, maybe you'll get some that long. It took two men to carry a cluster of grapes. That's how big and how fruitful and ripe the land was. Pomegranates, figs, uh, they returned after searching for 40 days. They saw nothing but blessings and wonders there, a land of milk and honey, in verse 27. Verse 28 then had anything been learned in these 40 years? Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, children of Ham, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. So there were tall black people there, and they had just come out of captivity 40 years before to tall black people. And this scared them. They felt like they were going from the frying pan right back into the fire. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones out of the spies who stood up and said, let's do it. Caleb is singled out here as saying that. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They still didn't believe in God, did they? Now, after he had delivered them from Egypt with all those incredible miracles, 
had them wander 40 years. And what happened during that 40 years of wandering? He gave them food right out of the sky every morning. Well, except Sabbath. They got to rest, didn't even have to gather it on Sabbath. He gave them quail when they screamed for meat, more than they could possibly eat. He provided water all along the way through that wilderness, that howling desert. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes stayed good for 40 years. How many of you are wearing clothes you've had 40 years? I don't answer that. But there were incredible, incredible miracles right out there in that time of trial and testing, weren't there? They still could have kind of gotten the picture, God can take care of us. So then they come right to the border of the promised land, sin spies in, they go in and they see a land flowing with milk and honey and grapes so big you couldn't eat them. Couldn't get your mouth around them. They come out and say, oh, those people are too big, they're too mean. We can't face them. Now, God had been delivering them all through, and they still didn't get the picture. That, to me, is amazing until I see us today. <laughs> you know? Why do we doubt it all? Why can't we get it? It's so easy to go back here and read this and say, Why couldn't they see that? Why couldn't they get it? Why did they doubt? Why did they murmur? Hey, look at all the things God had done. And they still couldn't get it. Those people, I'm telling you. Verse 32, And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched to the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. We saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. And I guess God was a grasshopper too. He couldn't save them either. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. We've come this far. And now nothing's going to work. So they cried and wept. And all the children of Israel did what? Murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? There's two chances we could have died, and we didn't capitalize on either one of them. And here we are about to die. I wonder why God gets frustrated at times, don't you? <laughs> and wherefore has the Eternal brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? 430 years we were in captivity, and we thought he was going to kill us then, and then 40 years we wandered, and we thought he'd kill us then, but all in all, he was saving it. He was going to wait and kill us here. They said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Let us hire ourselves at the Koch and go back to Protestantism. 
Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. They just fell on their face. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. You know, we go in there, we take our lives into, in that sense, our own hands, creeping around, spying on the land, hoping we don't get caught, come back and tell them, hey, let's do this. And they weep, and they cry, and they murmur, and gripe and complain, and say, this can't be done. And they spoke to all the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. So they try to remind them, if the eternal delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Well, they brought God into the picture. They didn't worry about the giants of Anak, the Amalekites or whoever. They said, God can do this. Only rebel not you against the eternal, neither fear you the people of the land. Are you beginning to recognize some prophecies for the end time we've read? Fear not, be of good courage, be strong, and work. We've read those many, many times. Same things being said to us now that were being said then. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Why couldn't they remember the Red Sea? Why couldn't they remember the manna and the quail? They had a clear and present danger in front of them, and that's all they could see. Couldn't remember anything God had ever done before. But all the congregation made stone them with stones. <laughs> They're trying to encourage people. We don't want to hear it. Let's get stones and stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, probably. And the glory of the eternal appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So the people are saying, let's all stone them, and then the glory of God appears in the tabernacle which was there. And the eternal said to Moses, how long? Did we read that the other day, speaking of Habakkuk? How long, O Lord? I think we read it in the Psalms. How long? And then we read one that said, no man knows how long. That was in the Psalms yesterday we read. So God's saying, how long will they provoke me? And we're sitting down there saying, how long is it going to be before you do something for us and work ourselves up into a froth and a bad attitude? Hmm. And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? If it gets a little long for us, we begin to despair at times. Some of us were sitting yesterday after potluck discussing some of the healings and some, we felt, ab abject miracles that have occurred since we've moved here. And there have been some pretty astounding ones, really. But if they don't happen every day, we forget them just like that. But we had to reminisce a little bit and remember some of the things that God had done. I think perhaps that's what Joshua and Caleb were trying to do there. They're trying to remind people that, you know, God really is there and he has done this and this and this, but it's so easy for us to forget. 
And some of those things that have happened, when I start thinking of the physical problems and emotional problems and all kinds of problems we might have here, sometimes I think, how long, O Lord? And I'm not sitting thinking about the things that God has done that got us here and kept us here and has sustained us while we're here. It's so easy to forget yesterday and worry about the pain I feel today. How long will they provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I've showed among them? Now what had he just done? He had put them through 430 years of misery and delivered them. He put them through 40 more years, essentially, of misery, but sustained and delivered them through it, hoping somewhere along the line they would humble themselves and turn to him with their whole hearts and not have the heart problem they'd always had. But so far, Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb were the only four out of how many millions that were willing to do that. That's all. Verse 12, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Eternal, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that you, Eternal, are among this people, that you, are, you Eternal, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. That's something I forgot to mention. They had a GPS Day and night, something to guide when they should move, how they should move, how fast they should move. They weren't lost out there. Now, if you shall kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of you will speak, saying, Because the Eternal was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness." I said, you know, you're going to kill all them and start another nation through me? Uh, wait a minute, what's this going to be as an effect on all the nations around? I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great, according as you have spoken, saying, The Eternal is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now notice verse 18. I want you to keep it in mind for when we get a little further down the line here today. It says, The eternal is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Let's go on in verse 19 for the moment, though. Pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. They weren't obeying God in Egypt. They'd forgotten who he was and were worshiping the gods of Egypt. The Eternal said, I have pardoned according to your word. That one request of Moses and God pardoned according to Moses' word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Eternal. 
This is something that God has wanted throughout all history since Adam and Eve. He has wanted his glory to fill the earth. Now, it didn't fill the earth at this point, did it? In fact, there are only about four people who are willing to listen to God at all on the whole face of the earth. The rest were worshiping Satan and who knows what all else and paying no attention to God. Reminds you a little bit of today in the way the world is, doesn't it? Now, some of the world in our so-called Christian nation give, they think, the Creator God lip service, but they don't even know who God is. But God asserts, I will forgive you in your sin because of Moses' plea, but just keep in mind, my glory will fill the earth. Now, it wasn't going to happen immediately, was it? But God is making a far-reaching statement here. He's saying, I am going to succeed. Now, I'm looking down here at the moment at the results of defeat. Now, who failed? Was it God? No. When God finally divorced Israel, who was the partner who had failed the marriage? It wasn't God. It was Israel. So God is looking here at a people he had brought out, millions of them, and there were only four faithful at this point. And in the face of that kind of odds and that kind of a very abysmal, sordid, self-defeating situation, God made an incredible statement. My glory will fill the earth. I don't care if only four of you do believe. I'm going to make this happen. I don't know that they believed him then, do you believe him now? Is he going to fill this earth with his glory? And do you believe that you will be part of it? Believe that? Trust him? Do you believe he's going to do it? Does it sound like he's way far off and this is never going to happen? Look around at the troubles we have and think, oh man discouraged and frustrated. Verse 22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. I don't know which ten times he's referring to there, but he, in his counting, and maybe there's some evidence somewhere in the Scripture, I've never really tried to check that out, but he could recount at least ten times where he had brought them to a point where he hoped they would believe, and they never did, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, Interesting. And has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. 
Now, he doesn't mention Joshua here because he had already designated to Moses that Joshua was going to lead the men. So he singles out Caleb and gives him a great deal of praise and underwrites him uh, because he was the only other one who did. And Caleb was not to be the leader, and yet on the other hand, he was the only other one who stood up and said, yes, we can do this, God will cause it to happen. But it's these attributes of Caleb that God singles out. He had another spirit with him, a different spirit and attitude than the rest of the people. Was it the Spirit of God? Interesting. This is Pentecost. We'll get into it a little more later. I want to point this out. And has followed me fully. Now, what are the scriptures we keep reading, in which I again reminded us yesterday about being wholehearted, full-hearted, if you will, are following God fully. Most of the people were concerned about the things around them. They had brought many of the attitudes this far from Egypt and were still saying, let's go back to Egypt. Now, you and I today, I use that word today because he uses it in Psalm 95. We'll see him using it again in Hebrews 3 and 4. Today, if you will hear my voice, he says, and he's speaking of a Sabbath and a rest, as we shall see. Did we bring some of Egypt with us? Do we bring the society of this world here? God has brought us out of Egypt. God has brought us out of Babylon. How are we so different than these Israelites if we bring Egypt and Babylon with us? If we don't depart from those attitudes, that society, that culture, that way of thinking and doing, we bring its entertainment, we bring its ways with us when we come out. How are we different than those Israelites? And then because our eye is and our mind is divided, because we sit the fence and won't come clear out, but maintain some of this society and this culture and its approach in our lives, we then begin to say, oh man, I don't know whether God's going to do this or not. And we begin to go the other way again. God called Worldwide Church of God out of this world. And how many went right back into it? How many who are still in the church, if you will, are drifting, are not really pushing, are not really working at overcoming and growing? I wonder how many of that roughly 150,000 that came to be, I wonder how many out of that number are still really working at, with all their heart, growing, overcoming, seeking God, spending time with God, studying His Word, meditating on His Word and His creation around them, praying to Him fervently, daily, 
building a close relationship and a trust in God. I wonder how many there are. Or how many are still drifting about the way they were in worldwide and being entertained by the various kinds of screens we have and not devoting the time to Almighty God. Point to ponder. Something to think about. It's easy to go back here and read this and say, those stupid people, why couldn't they get it? Why couldn't they understand? Why couldn't they seek God? We do, don't we? How much do we? Has it changed? Are things different now? Maybe some. <clears throat> Maybe it's not as bad as it was then. I don't know. But he had another spirit, and he followed God fully. That's what God was looking for. He said, I am going to let him go in. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Get out of the way from here. You're not going in. You're going to go out there and finish dying, except for Joshua and Caleb. And even Moses' death sentence had already been passed on him because of one indiscretion. He was the leader, and he was not allowed that. Say to them, as truly as I live, says the Eternal, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. You said, I brought you out here to die. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And since that's what you've predicted, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. We need to be very careful what we say, what approach we take. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swore to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, you said they would die too, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. They despised by not believing what God had promised them that they could have. Why does God say the just shall live by faith? Now that is quoted in the Old Testament, not just the New. In the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk got into an attitude and started questioning God, how long, O Lord, it says the just shall live by faith. Now that's repeated in the New Testament. But there, it was quoted, and, it, and Habakkuk is a prophecy for today. The just shall live by faith. Now these people hadn't. But now the children had not had testing. They had not rebelled. It was their parents. Of course, if the parents have a bad attitude, it's real easy for the children to have the same thing, isn't it? Because children tend to go by the signals they get from their parents. But at this point, they were underage. Anyone under 20, that was the age of accountability. God said, I will take them in, in spite of you. 
Your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. So it brought them from the Red Sea, brought them to the promised land, didn't let them in until he checked their attitudes, and then he turned them back out in the desert and said, all right, wander till you die. Uh, they'll be wasted in the wilderness after the number of the days in which you search the land. Even forty days, each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my breach of promise. So that's saying the spies had been in there for forty days, checking out the land. And he said, a year for a day, as God says in Numbers 14.34, this is the way it's going to be. You'll just wander, and within forty years, you're all going to be dead out there, like you said would happen. I would have delivered you, but hey, that's what you want. You know, you've been telling me that's what you want. It's what you told me as soon as we crossed the Red Sea. It's what you told me here. All right, go for it. You want to die? Die. God says in another place, why will you die, O Israel? Why are you so dead set on dying? Why was the church so dead set on being blown apart and not making it into God's rest, into the millennium, or into a place of safety, which is another rest, a short rest, but a rest? Why were we so self-determined to straddle the fence and be part of Satan's society while giving lip service to God? Why? Verse 35, I the eternal have said, I will surely do, uh, I shall surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the eternal. So God brought a plague on them because they had influenced the people in a wrong way. Does this give you a little bit of an idea why God says that the teachers will be judged twice as harshly? Because if we turn people away and destroy what belief and faith and trust the people have, then God holds it to your account. That's why he said, be not many teachers, be not many masters. You better think twice before you start influencing people. We have people who say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to leave it in his hands. And then people say, well, you shouldn't do that. You ought to go to do this. You ought to go do that. You ought to do this and something else. What are you doing? You're destroying the faith of that little one. You'd better be careful what you advise people. Who are you to advise somebody they should do something which goes against maybe their conscience, their belief, their teaching, and their reading of the Scripture? A word to the wise. Be careful. Would you recommend someone to go back to Babylon or to Egypt for solutions? So they died by the plague. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh 
which were of the men that went to search the land, lived still. And Moses told these sayings to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. <laughs> hey, God, God gave you what you've been saying is going to happen and what you're wishing for. You want to go back to Egypt? He says, go. You're not going across this Jordan River. Out of here. Go back and wander. They rose up early in the morning and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we'll go up unto the place which the Eternal has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Eternal? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Eternal is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there, and they are going to kill you. But they presumed to go up to the hilltop. Nevertheless, the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill, and smote them, and discomfited them, even to Hormah. So they were kind of in a catch-22. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. They didn't trust God, and the Amalekites and the Canaanites came in and killed a bunch of them. So I guess then they decided to go back out in the desert and die like God had said they would. Let's go back to Psalm 95 just for a moment. Here is the great Creator God who attests that He is the one who did these things through David. He is our Maker. He is our God, verse 7, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, there's a time when God raises his voice and says, I want you to listen today. Okay? Harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. And he was grieved, and he said they were a people with heart problems. They erred in their hearts, and they have forgotten and won't follow his ways. Unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So they failed, and even those who lived, the young ones who then grew up and who were taken into the promised land by Joshua, uh, then quickly departed from God again, and the marriage covenant that he instituted with them when they went into that land of promise, that land of rest, God called it a rest, going into the promised land. They made a marriage covenant with him, and then they went a-whoring after the other nations. They went after the trade, the economy, the cultures, the gods of the nations around them again. So God divorced them because of their spiritual and physical idolatry and adultery, and cast them aside and said, you're not my people anymore. I'm not your husband anymore. That's what it talks about in Hosea, a wife of harlotries that Hosea was told to marry. So those who did enter that rest, and it would have been a rest again, wouldn't it, after wandering those 40 years? Now you came into a land of milk and honey and big grapes and all these things and good grain crops, and ah, peace, restfulness. God was driving out the enemies ahead of them. Or, as at Jericho, as soon as they crossed, that was a pretty restful battle, if you ask me. 
They didn't have to go and get hacked up with swords and spears. All they had to do was march around Jericho. Walls all fell down. All they had to do was shout. Hey! Walls all fall down. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Pretty easy. That's the way it was going. They couldn't stand prosperity. Sorry. Couldn't handle it. Why does Christ say that for a rich man to enter the kingdoms like a camel going through the eye of a needle? <laughs> we can't stand prosperity. We want blessings. Men have always wanted blessings, haven't they? Mankind basically can't stand being blessed. Can't handle it. Has God, over a period of time, thought, you know, I do what I can for people, I bless them wherever I can, but they handcuff me. I can't bless them. I'd love to. I just can't. The minute I bless them, they turn and go the other way. Can you believe it? We're again poised at a time when God is going to call out a people to set an example for the rest of the world, bless them, let them build the temple, let them build Jerusalem back, protect them in a restful time when the rest of the world is certainly in unrest. And most of the population of the earth being destroyed. And he tells us ahead of time all these things that are going to happen. He didn't always tell them ahead of time back then, did he? This time he does. We have such an incredible advantage, don't we? We know what's going to happen to the world around us. We know what's going to happen to physical Israel. We know everything God has laid out that he's about to do. And he's told us, just turn to me fully with your whole heart. Worship me. Turn loose of the world. Give up the garbage that you listen to and hear and the sin that you so easily dote upon the sin which so easily besets you, as Paul put it in Hebrews. Turn to me, turn loose of Egypt. Don't keep saying, oh, I still want this, and I still want that, I still want something else. Oh, for the leaks and the rock music of Egypt. Or whatever. Gotta have it. Can't give it up. God's holding you, telling you, all of that is going away very soon. You are going to give it up. All of it. It will not exist. The question is, will you? Are we going to watch violence and murder and sex scenes on TV and in movies and then expect God to let us enter into his rest when we're doing the things of the Egypt and Babylon around us? You've got to catch 22, just like they did back then. You don't give it up, I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness till you die. Well, in that case, we'll just go on into the promised land. God didn't go with them. The Malachites and the Canaanites started killing them. Now what do we do? We're going to die one way or the other. 
We're right down to it, brethren. We are going to live or die. And all these things we're having trouble giving up, we're going to give up, A, because we're going to die, and B, because God is going to take care of them and get rid of it all if we live. So the things we cling to that we're unwilling to give up because they titillate our senses somehow are going away anyway. And if we don't give it up, we too are going away. Now, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he recorded back there in Numbers and in Psalms and in Exodus and all these places are just as real today as they were then. In fact, they're more real today because we know ahead of time exactly what's going to happen and we are given opportunity to come out of it. We have this chance. Now let's go. I'm not going to go to Acts 2. Uh, it's been gone to today. Let me just say a few things. They went through the Passover after Christ, or at the time of his death. Uh, they went through the days of unleavened bread. They washed feet, or he washed their feet that time. And he told them what kind of world was ahead. And he promised them a comforter, did he not? A comforter that would give them rest, that would give them strength and power, a comforter, a spirit that would come, that would teach them all things, that would give them a different approach and attitude. Maybe the attitude that Caleb had, if you will. He said, you wait here in Jerusalem for 50 days, and the comforter will come. Now, it's already been mentioned today that those men were still carnal. Even after Christ died, or at the time he was about to die, they denied him, Peter, three times. They ran from the scene. Wouldn't admit, that's my Lord. Just didn't get it, if you will. Didn't have faith, didn't have trust, didn't have a whole lot of understanding. But he says, you count 50 and things will change. So they waited 50 days, and they were all in one place, in one accord, in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit came as a rushing wind, with flames of fire, and all kinds of miracles began to happen. People were healed, people repented and were baptized. Incredible miracles to cause people to believe in God. They were given a different spirit, a different attitude, a different approach, a different mentality. They were given hope, encouragement, excitement. They were given miracles again, like had been done in Egypt, Red Sea, River Jordan, Jericho, on and on it goes. Incredible miracles again. This time they were given help. Now, we look at Galatians 6 sometimes, or Galatians 5, excuse me, where it talks of the fruit of the Spirit, and we say, I need to have all those things. God, give me your Spirit. I'm going to turn back there and review that for a moment. 
Because God was offering the New Testament people a rest, was he not? A rest from their attitudes, a rest from their sins, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit to come to give them help. Now we often think of the things we need in terms of the Spirit of God, but maybe sometimes we don't think or let it slip that when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit of God that we need to have inculcated into our minds and hearts, maybe sometimes we forget that that truly is the Spirit that is the mind, that is the mentality, that is the thought process that God is. So when you read here of the fruit of the Spirit, you are reading the attributes of God Almighty. He is love. He is joy. He is peace. He is patient and long-suffering. He is gentle. He is good. He has absolute faith and trust because he knows who he is and he can swear by his own name. We're not to swear under any conditions because we can't, we're vain. We're temporary. We can't make anything happen. He can. He believes in himself. He's meek. Now, he tells who he is because he has all great power, and yet he can be entreated. He is meek. He is temperate. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts of the flesh, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, putting ourselves ahead of others, but provoking one another, or or provoking, making each other angry, or envying one another. So envy, jealousy, the works of the flesh are not to be. We're to walk in the Spirit. Now that Spirit was poured out on them in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. And it was a Sabbath. And it was, the, it was an annual Sabbath, and it was the beginning, uh, an earnest, if you will, of the fullness of the Spirit that is yet to come. God gave us an earnest down. Uh, if you want to buy a house, you put earnest money on it, then later on you give a bigger down payment, and then hopefully you pay it off in cash, but more than likely in our society you have a mortgage. Uh, That is not the fullness of joy, a mortgage, if you've noticed. Uh, So the the analogy kind of breaks down. God's going to give it in cash. You're going to own this house fully. You'll not have a mortgage for eternity on it, given freely. But the Holy Spirit was given as an earnest money or a down payment in that sense. God gave some there, and he gave enough that it was a very powerful witness. Now later on, in the early New Testament church, that waned. And people did not walk in the Spirit, they began to walk in the flesh. Now some succeeded. (coughs) James, Peter, John, the Apostles, Stephen, Philip, many that Paul mentioned as being faithful. They did good. But many did not walk in the Spirit, and they eventually fell away, and there was a great falling away before John wrote the books of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. By then, a great falling away had occurred. 
So even with the Spirit of God, if it is not fully used, if it is not sought and walked with, we can fall away. But with that earnest of the Spirit in Acts 2, God pointed forward, and that was a prophecy of the fullness of the Spirit being given at the end time, as per the book of Joel, when again miracles will be done the same way they were done in Acts 2, only in greater measure at the end. Because Acts 2 was only a, if you will, minor fulfillment of what is yet to come. When God blesses in the first month and then gives his spirit afterward when the young men and the maidens will dream dreams and all those things in Joel 2, and the heavens are going to show great signs and wonders, and greater works will be done at the end than were done then. There will be massive healings. We will have wings as eagles to do the work of God, even though physically now we're about to wear out. Somebody accused me today when I hurt my foot of having OS, what was it? OMS. Took me a second, old man syndrome. But we're getting older, we're getting weaker, we're getting stove up, we're getting all kinds of problems, aren't we? And God is going to have to, not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit. See, we have to come to realize we are nothing and can do nothing. Christ said, of myself, I am nothing. I can do nothing. But the Father above gives me what I need to do what I need to do. If we're going to walk after the Spirit, we have to seek God fully and put a lot of things aside that we may still be holding dear and not willing to part with. Serving God fully means really believing Him, means really following Him. It means adopting His way, not the world's way. When were those Israelites going to get it? When were they going to fully begin to follow God's way? Let's go to Hebrews 3. God has often done great signs and wonders. Now, a new covenant was established with the New Testament church there at Acts 2 with the giving of God's Holy Spirit. And His Spirit should give us love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, all the fruit of the Spirit, if we will walk in the Spirit. So with that in mind, we go to the same one who wrote that in Hebrews 3. He says, wherefore, considering that, considering all the things he had already written here about Christ and how powerful and wonderful he is as the captain of our salvation and so on, he says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Emmanuel. All right? Here we are, human beings, we've been baptized, we do have the Spirit of God, uh, maybe not in the 
power and the manifestation we would like, but we do have it. And he was talking to people here just like you and me. <clears throat> they needed encouragement. They needed correction. They needed guidance. They needed inspiration. They needed everything that Paul could write to them that he knew about God to help them do something that had not been done since Adam and Eve except just a little bit here and there by a few faithful ones in the Old Testament and by a few faithful ones in the New Covenant. So he's addressing a people who have a history of failure, but he wants to rise above that. So consider Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful at all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house. So we're going right back to creation here. It says, look to Christ, who was the one who did the creating under the Father, who built the house. He has far more glory than Moses. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. So here we have God the Creator, and we're going to be talking again about the Sabbath and the rest here very shortly. This all comes together again and has greater meaning now than ever it has in the past. And Moses truly was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken after. And yeah, Moses made his mistakes. He didn't get to go into the physical rest, but he is listed in Hebrews 11 as one who is waiting to go into the ultimate spiritual, final, and everlasting rest of God. So, yeah, we all make mistakes. So did everybody in the past except Christ. That doesn't mean it can't be forgiven because one of the qualities of the Spirit of God and of God himself is, what did I tell you to remember back there? Mercy and forgiveness through Christ, our Savior. He hasn't changed. If they had repented, God would have forgiven them. Uh, verse 6, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What does the Holy Spirit give you? It's a partial rest, isn't it? Because out of doubt, misery, frustration, sin, death, the works of the flesh, the Holy Spirit can impart confidence, rejoicing in joy. Joy is the middle of the word rejoicing, the root of it. And of hope, the Holy Spirit imparts hope. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. He wasn't just proving them. They were proving him. And they never got it proved to themselves. Never really repented. Have we? To what degree have we? Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. We just read that in Numbers. 
So he's bringing that story in Numbers and in Psalm 95 forward to the end-time church. So swore I in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Isn't there a division yet coming? He is calling only a remnant to do his end-time work, to build his temple, both spiritual and physical, I think, and the physical walls of Jerusalem as well as spiritual Jerusalem. A 10% remnant of those called here at the end. And then, when the abomination is set up, in the temple, after it has been built, at the end time, the tribulation will begin, and there will be another separation. Two separations we're talking about here. Out of 100% of the church, 10% will be stirred to come and do God's end time work. The work of the witnesses, of preaching the world of the gospel, of the gospel around the world is a witness, and then the end will come and the building of the temple of God, both physical and spiritual. Ten percent, so ninety percent are left behind going into the tribulation. And then out of that ten percent, when the abomination of desolation is set up and you see the armies gathering about the real Jerusalem, then let them which be in the true land of Judea, let him who reads understand, please, flee to the mountains, and pray that you be worthy, or counted worthy, to escape. So two major separations. Remember Gideon? Send these home. Send these home. Send those home. I'll work with these, 300. Now this probably will be more than 300, but you get the picture. Two major separations. Now you here have made the first cut. That's incredible in itself, is it not? You're here. You're here to help. God has already brought you here to establish something that others may come to. So you made the first cut. How are we doing toward the second? There's another one coming. Now he's also called us here to do the same thing he called James, Peter, John, Jude, Philip, Stephen, and others, Paul, to do. He's called us here to be a witness to the whole world that God is God. He's called us to preach that gospel to the world. Whoever the two that do most of the preaching will be remain, remains to be seen. But this is the beginnings, I believe, of that work. Not that we're great. We've been just called here as the janitor crew to clean the thing up and get it ready for others to come. So we're not the main workforce. We're not necessarily the main movers. and may not turn out to be that. But we're the ones that are called to establish and set up a place. And that in itself is a pretty high calling. Why did your mind open to come here? Most people say, oh, yeah, right. You didn't. Here you be. Wow. Incredible, isn't it? You know, when Christ called his 12 disciples, he went around, went down to the sea, went over where they were building, went over there where they were collecting taxes, and said, hey, you, come on, go with me. 
I got a job for you to do. And everybody around, sitting around, said, Why'd Peter go with him? Why'd Matthew go with him? Where are they going? Hey, come back and collect taxes. You left fish in your net. Get back over here. Nah, sorry, I got a job to do. When you came out here, people said, Where do you think you're going? What are you going out there for? Well, it's hard to explain. It is, isn't it? But you believe it. You wouldn't be here. Now we're going to see it through. We're going to make it happen. We're going to do our part. People haven't always, you know. I've been reading about that. And here he gives us a warning. The New Testament church, that was the beginning of the New Testament church. We're the end of it. There is more pressure. There is more opportunity. There is a crescendo, a climax here at the end that is bigger than anything that has ever happened on the face of this earth. Did he not tell us in Jeremiah, things will be so great, so dramatic, so powerful, that you will forget the Red Sea and Jordan. We've been reminded of those miracles through the whole Bible. Just were here in Hebrews. And God says it's going to be so incredible, it will just blow that away. The things that are about to happen with the church and against the whole world are going to be so powerful. There will be plagues over the whole earth. There will be water turned to blood, not just in Egypt, but over the whole earth. Armies will be subdued. Governments will be flattened before Zerubbabel. God will make us a sharp, threshing instrument. Isaiah 41 and Micah 6, or 5, whatever it is. We are on the edge of the most dramatic time in history that has ever been. Don't harden your hearts as in the day of provocation. I said they won't enter my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today we'll come into sharper focus here in a minute. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Can your heart be hardened toward God's way by the sin that we not only commit, but watch and hear and observe electronically and in other ways? What's the difference, really, between living it vicariously and going out and doing it? You're doing it in your mind. God says control every thought. We're not supposed to go there. When are we going to stop? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, 
Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. In other words, they had a chance to make sure their heart was right and they were following the ways of God. So he says, listen today. I'm telling us, listen today while there is yet a chance, before it's too late. And you're going to die either direction you go. Back in the wilderness or across the river. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, for some, when they had heard, did provoke. Didn't listen, didn't get it. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. The just shall live by faith. They better believe. They better be true. They better understand. They better follow God's way. Give up the way of this world. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Why does God emphasize throughout the New Testament the need for faith? Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Don't even look like you're about to fall short of it. That takes diligence. That You have to make your calling and election sure. This is something we can't be half-hearted about, lackadaisical about. The very reason God blew the church apart was to heat us up, to make us fervent instead of being lackadaisical. Has it worked? How many has it worked with? For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as to them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. You're hearing it. Is it mixed with faith, with trust, with belief that God will see you through if you will do your part? For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now God says his glory is going to cover the earth there in Numbers 14. He says it in a lot of places. And he's, this was a faith accompli before the foundation of the earth were laid. God is a father, and he is a successful father, and his children are all going to be aborted. Most of them are going to be saved. Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. Not every individual, but the vast majority. God is going to be a success in all that he has set his hand to do. And boy, has he been working at it for 6,000 years. And we here at the end are right in the crosshairs of whether or not we will believe or not. If it were not for the faith of the very elect, no flesh would be saved alive. God's counting on us to come through. He's given us every opportunity. He's given us a different spirit that no one had until Acts 2. 
Verse 4, For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, that's Psalm 95 he's quoting from, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. They just didn't believe God. They really didn't believe he was going to give them water. He promises us pools of water in the wilderness and a garden of Eden out here. Do you believe it? Is it going to happen? Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. We're here today on a double Sabbath. Yesterday's Sabbath, today's Pentecost. We get to hear it two days in a row. Are we listening today? Because the Pentecost pictures the harvest of the first fruits. Those who will enter into the rest of God first, into the kingdom and into the millennium first. We're the ones who are given the first promise of eternal life. That's what today is about. It is a Sabbath picturing the rest of God. And he gave us the Holy Spirit on this day in Acts 2 and has been giving it to us since at baptism and the laying on of hands if we repented so that we could have an earnest, some of that spirit to give us faith and hope and help in the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of Caleb. A different spirit so that we might fully seek after God. That's why we get rid of the works of the flesh, not just doing it and thinking it, but watching others do it and think it. That is a plague in our modern society. Sin is at the door. It's in the window. It's on the screen. It's in the literature. It's everywhere. It's downtown. The women don't dress modestly. Do we do like them? The men curse and swear and leer at all the women. Are we like them? Harden not your hearts. Verse 8, for if Emmanuel had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So, yes, there was rest in the promised land, but that isn't the last rest. They had rest in the Garden of Eden, had it first, blew it. They went through trials, got a chance at rest, blew it. The New Testament church has given the Holy Spirit to help. We have a chance, some are blowing it. We don't have to. God forbid that we should blow it. Why will you die, O Israel? There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. 
our carnal, natural, normal human way of thinking and acting, we rest from. We enter into the Sabbath every week, don't we? Because it pictures creation, it pictures the rest of God from His work, and it pictures to us today a rest from the carnal, wretched, physical world we have to work in six days a week. When the Sabbath comes, you can set that aside. You cannot think about it. You're commanded, in fact, not to think about it. Your own thoughts, your own ways, your own pleasures, you're here to devote that to the Creator of the Sabbath who made heavens and earth and you and me. And we enter into that rest every week as a type and a picture of the 7,000-year plan of God and the rest of of a 1,000 years at the end of it. Six years of human misery and domination by Satan the devil, which we still imbibe in way too much, and we've got to get it out and rest from that so that we are qualified to enter into his eternal rest. And that doesn't mean eternal death in which you rest. We will be very, very busy in the millennia. But we will rest from what? Pain, misery, crying, sin, bad consciences, frustration, boredom. All those things, he says, he will wipe away in Revelation. We have the chance to live forever at rest. Peace, happiness, joy. Good families, no divorce, no abortions. No miscarriages, no pain, nothing evil. Just like the Garden of Eden, only it's forever this time. Those who overcome now and enter into that rest will be given the tree of life. Let us therefore, or let us labor, verse 11, therefore to enter that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He wants us to turn with the heart. Now, it hurts to the quick sometimes when somebody will sit and tell us about all the things we still imbibe in that are sinful, that we don't want to give up. Music, movies, hard to find one that is really worth watching. Hard to find music that's worth listening to. Hard to find a lot of things that we need to do. Hard to give up a lot of things that we have become accustomed to, and don't. But the Word of God says those things are full of sin. Much of the music is based on drugs and violence and alcoholism and adultery and fornication, and we listen to that crap. When will we get it, brethren? This gets to the marrow and cuts to the heart.
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it all. He watches us. He sees the thoughts and the intents of the heart and mind. We are vile. As was read to us in Isaiah 64, we're like used menstruous cloths, not really appealing to man or woman or God. We are vile, as Job said. And the only hope it's the Spirit of God surging through our hearts and minds so that we might qualify to show the rest of the world that God is God. That's what he's called you and me to do. And I'm sorry, but we fall far short. And I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to us. I do too. And it hurts me to sit here and say these things because I know I'm just as indicted as anybody. We're all hypocrites. Seeing then, all right, is there any hope? When we sit and consider what I just said, <coughs> is there any hope? Where are you going to find hope? Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Emmanuel, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need.